0: Previously in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, it's important to look at context, that this has been a focus on God's plan for the universe and his church. It's like the big picture of what God is up to, if you, if you want to know, you can read Ephesians 1. And essentially it's saying that through Jesus Christ, God has chosen a people for himself so that by the power of the Spirit we might live now and forever for the praise of his glory. Now, that is the purpose of our existence, to live for the praise of his glory and grace. And Paul's prayer is that God's people might be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation to understand certain things better. We know things, but we need to know them better. That's what Paul's concern is in chapter one. And the first thing that he wants us to know better is God himself. I pray that you might know him better. That's why I was saying during our prayer time that we should be praying along those lines, not just that our problems will go away, but that we might we might get closer to God. And the second thing is something about the future, that we would know our future inheritance more. I mean, how often do you ask God to give you more of a sense of appreciation of the riches that await you in the new creation? We're so bogged down in in our present struggle to be rooted in the hope that we have of eternal life. That's what Paul wants us to pray about that. You see that in um, verse 17, 18 of chapter 1. Your eyes of your heart might be enlightened. We have these kind of sleepy eyes in our hearts and we want to open up our eyes to see how wonderful our future is in Christ. And then also that we might understand the power of the resurrection, life at work in the present. You see that in verse 19. It's an extraordinary verse where he says that his incomparably great power at work in those who believe, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, Is it working you? How much power is that? That's a lot of power, right? And he wants us to appreciate that power because we often feel weak, don't we? And we are weak in ourselves. But Paul's desire is that we would pray that God would give us that power and recognise that we have that power that raised Christ from the dead in the present. As the outer man wastes away, the inner man is being renewed in resurrection power. It's easy to forget these things. Easy to forget Knowing God better, looking forward to heaven, the resurrection power in the present. That's chapter one, but chapter two is, if you like, um, focusing in on us as individuals, and it's particularly got a, a focus on the past, what it was like before we knew God, what it was like, what it's like for those that are not in Christ. And that's why the past tense is used quite a lot in this chapter. We're going to look at it closely in two sermons this week, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2, and next week, God willing, verses 6 to 10. So I hope that you will track with me and make sure that I'm saying what is written. And um, that's always a good thing to do, isn't it, in, uh, in services. May God speak to us through his word today. Amen. So what you often get when you go to the doctors, you, you get the bad news and the good news, don't you? Um, and what we've got in this passage is the bad news... Of the, of the disease that we have and then the cure the good news is the cure isn't it of what we have in Christ and it starts off this is a very bleak passage to begin with so I hope you'll bear with it because so, even on a sunny day like this we don't want to think bleak thoughts but we need to appreciate how bad things were for us so that we can have a greater appreciation of how good things are now for us in Christ remember that woman who was crying and wiping Jesus' feet with her tears you know And he said she loves much because she has been forgiven much. If we think that we're not really that bad sinners, then we won't appreciate how wonderful the saviour Jesus is, you see. And that's part of the uh, emphasis of this passage is to get us to really dig down deep into how bad things were for us without Christ. And so um, the title I have for you this morning is Those Whom Sin Has Killed, Only God Can Bring Back to Life. Those Whom Sin Has Killed, Only God Can Bring Back to Life. And I have three headlines for you, three points. One, you were dead. Two, we deserved wrath. And three, but God made us alive. But God made us alive. You were dead. We deserved wrath. But God made us alive. So firstly, you were dead. Who wants to hear that? (laughs) None of us. It's pretty obvious when a person is physically alive or dead. There There are key indicators of life aren't there such as they're breathing (laughs) Um, their heart is beating you can feel a pulse they might be moving or speaking if someone is dead they're not breathing their heart's stopped they've stopped moving they're dead still they're not speaking to you what is less obvious is whether somebody is spiritually dead or alive isn't it you can't tell that by the naked eye because everybody looks the same uh, on the outward you can't look at a person and say, you're spiritually dead, you're alive. And in fact, many people in the world look incredibly alive. You think about Elliot Kipchoge, who won the London Marathon a couple of weeks ago, and nearly, he's just almost got under two hours. He's the fastest man of all time. It's incredible to run 13 miles an hour for 26 miles. That's like someone going quite fast on a bike. <laughs> it's just incredible. He's alive. He's a very alive man, isn't he, in the body. And then you think of someone like David Attenborough, who is in his 90s. He's older than everyone here, I think. Um, and he is still going for it, isn't he? Making these documentaries. And, and he is, if you like, you know, intellectually alive and culturally alive. But is he spiritually alive? Is Eliot Kipchoge spiritually alive? You can't really tell by looking at somebody with the naked eye because we can't read the heart. What does it mean to be dead? You were dead, verse one, in your transgressions and sins. Of course, this is talking about being spiritually dead and being spiritually dead. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so what's happened is we've all sinned and that's cut us off from the life of God. Most people would say that humanity, human beings are naturally good. heard that people say well i think we're all good people really deep down everybody's basically decent it's true that you know most people don't go out and murder your neighbor you might you might curse your neighbor under your breath if they've parked their car across your driveway or something like that you might um think nasty thoughts every now and then but most of us are decent people we recycle our waste we pay our taxes um we wait our turn in queues, because we're very British. Um, we understand how to queue very well. We like our queues. We're decent British citizens, and, and England is a British, and, and Britain is a Christian country, isn't it? We're Christian monarch on the throne, and the bishops in the House of Lords, and so on. And we think, well, we're Christian people, because we were born in a Christian country. And so we're probably spiritually alive. But that's not true, is it? Because the Bible says, as for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins. It's uncomfortable. It's like that film that came out a few years ago. It's an inconvenient truth. Now, we might admit to being um, spiritually imperfect. Somebody might say, well, I'm only human. You know, I, I get things wrong. I've got flaws. I've got weaknesses. But spiritually dead, that's going a bit far. No, it isn't. This is what the Bible says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And dead men don't do much. They can't do anything except lie there and slowly rot. It's the fallen condition that we find ourselves in. And what does that mean to be spiritually dead? Well. It means to sin, doesn't it? You're dead in your transgressions and sins. And we often think about sins like, you know, uh, don't steal and don't kill and the Ten Commandments, and that's all true. But the way that this passage expresses spiritual deadness is by what we follow. So I saw a car sticker once that says, don't follow me or you'll end up at my house. (laughs) So if you're following something, you end up the same as that thing, don't you? So if you follow your football team, it's the last day of the premiership today, Manchester City and Liverpool, you know Jocelyn, you you end up like sharing in the joys and the distress of that team, don't you? And you see how identified people become with their football team or whatever it is. It might be their, I don't know if you watch Emmerdale or Coronation Street or EastEnders, people start to get really identified with the characters and they start to feel um, as if they're members of their family almost. Wasn't it that woman who got put in prison and they wrote letters to the prime minister? There 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 was a character in one of the soaps And she was in prison and people were so upset about it, they started writing to their MP. You know, she's a fictional character. So what you follow, you end up the same as that thing. You end up identified with that thing. And there are three things in this passage that we as naturally dead, spiritually cut off from God people follow. The world, the flesh and the devil. And actually, it's in the order of the world, the devil and the flesh. The first thing, we follow the world. If you look at verse two, it says... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. You followed the ways of this world. Now, what is the world? Well, in one sense, the world is, in the Bible, the world is the universe. It's the cosmos. Same word in Greek is cosmos. And then the world could also describe planet Earth and all the people living on it. But here, the world means the world system that is secular, atheist, independent from God. Um, You see it very most clearly at the Tower of Babel. It's when mankind unites together, builds a big tower and says, we don't need you, God. And that's how the world thinks, isn't it? The world is driven by concerns other than God. It 's driven by economics, you know we 've got to make money and we 've got to make the capitalist world system run smoothly we 're driven by politics we 've got to make sure that we 've got our countries all lined up with each other and so on and things like climate change and we 've got to think about individually the most important goals that we have are domestic goals to make sure that i 've got get married get my degree or get my job, get my nice house with the picket fence and have the 2.4 children and, and have enough money to retire and then I can go to the golf course. And these are our goals, you see, and that's the world's goals. And you see the adverts and you see the magazines. I don't know if you ever looked at the magazine rack recently. I've been looking in, down in Egham in And the magazines, they are so... Everything they're obsessed with is so temporary. You can leaf through it and there's nothing about your soul. It's all about the outside, you know, what you wear, what you drink, what you eat. There's nothing about the part of you that endures forever. There's nothing about God at all. We're totally indifferent. And that's the world system. We are totally uninterested in the things that are most important, which is where do we stand with our Creator? And we can live without Him. I remember, Do you remember that interview that Tony, Tony Blair did an interview with Jeremy Paxman many years ago, about 20 years ago? And he was asked whether he prayed with George Bush because they're both professing Christians. And Tony Blair was kind of sniggering and embarrassed because he found the question embarrassing to think that any God would play any part in his political discourse, in his political life. He said, so why, why on earth would you bring God into it? And that is the world. And we follow the ways of the world. We follow the agenda of the world and the priorities of the world. And they are everything but honouring God. And we also follow the devil. Naturally speaking, it says here in verse 2, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. The devil is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He is one of God's chief angels. He's a fallen servant of God. We've been studying him on Thursday nights. If you would like to find out more about what's happening there, you can come on Thursday nights to Ron's house. Um, It's very, very interesting, the book of Job. So take every opportunity to learn more about God's word, um, not just on Sunday mornings. Peter's doing a great job helping us do that. And Satan is described in the the Bible as a prowling lion seeking whom he can devour. The God of this age has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers. And he, in a sense, governs over this world system because this world system and the devil are aligned together in their rebellion against God. And he says, you follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And most people say that's outrageous. I'm not a Satanist. I don't I don't you slaughter goats in my basement and have wear a pentagram around my. you know, and, and kind of re- listen to music by heavy metal bands. I'm not that kind of person. I'm a, I'm a decent, respectable member of the residents' Association. I don't follow the devil. Yes, you do. Paul's saying, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. It might not be a conscious thing, but in rebelling and ignoring God, we are siding with the enemy. Right from the Garden of Eden onwards, and I may come back to that. So we are following the devil, the spirit um, is at work in those who are disobedient. That's really, really scary and really ugly, isn't it? To think that we might be on the devil's side without even knowing it as a human race. But we like to think of ourselves as such good people. The world, the devil and the flesh. If you look at verse three, it says, all of us also lived among them at one time, see that all of us, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. The flesh, the world, the devil and the flesh. We follow the flesh. What is the flesh? Well, the flesh can mean You know, flesh and blood, the the physical element of who we are, but it also in the Bible tends to mean that the carnal nature, the condition that we're fallen into. It's extraordinary that God is so angry with the world that he floods the world. Do you remember that Noah's flood? And only eight people survive. And after the flood, you think, great, everything's going to be fantastic. And this is what God says, after the flood, every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. This is after God's cleaned out the world and he still says there's something wrong with us. It's a genetic disease, this sin that we're born into. There's like a magnet inside of us that's attracted to law-breaking. You know, when you see that sign that says, don't walk on the grass, what do you want to do? Suddenly I want to walk on that grass. I wasn't interested before, but now you've put the sign up, I want to break that. You never have to teach a child to misbehave. Never had to do it. I'm not a parent, but I've been a teacher for over 20 years and I've never had to say, look, you lot, you're too obedient. You're all get your books out when I ask you to. You're all writing and reading and engaging nicely and politely and kindly and lining up. They never have to do that. You always have to correct children and stop them misbehaving. Because their inbuilt bias and tendency is the flesh. This idea of little innocent, sweet little children, is is bizarre and naive. And and kind of I don't know, almost delusional. But like, it's cause I want to believe they're little angels. They're not little angels, they're little devils if anything, and we're all big devils. That's the problem, it's something that happened to us right back at the beginning, it broke us. And we know that we're slaves to sin by nature because we all know what it's like to have one chocolate or five chocolates or 10 chocolates too many. And we all know what it's like uh, to break a confidence that someone shared with us or to share some gossip. It, we know when we're opening up our mouth and we're saying something and as we're saying it, we think I shouldn't be saying this, but I'll say it anyway. And we know what it's like to walk down the road and see somebody that's a bit overweight or a bit badly dressed and we judge them in our minds, don't we? And we know what it's like to uh, get angry when we're driving and gesticulate and blow our horn at people and maybe even swear. Because there's something rotten in us. It's called the flesh. We know what it's like to subtly boast in our achievements when we're telling a story where we're the hero of that story. And we know what it is like to fight every day for Christians with that nature that wants to please itself and not please God at all. There's something wrong with us. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, your transgressions and your sins. And we follow the, the world, the devil and the flesh. And this is why Jesus says you must be born again. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you're not OK as you are. Everyone in heaven will have two birthdays their first birthday, and then when they are born again, when they come to know Jesus and receive that new nature where the sin and the flesh is crucified. So that's the first point there is you were dead. Those whom sin has killed, only God can bring back to life. You were dead. But secondly, also quite depressingly, got to have the bad news before the good news, is we deserved wrath. If you turn over the page, if you've got the same Bible as me, verse 3b, like the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath like the rest you see it's a universal problem like the rest all of us nobody's exempt you know the old cowboy movies they used to have it that the good guy would wear the white hat and the bad guy would wear the black hat a lot i don't know it's kind of insulting to the audience like which one's the good guy the guy with the white hat okay you know, and so you'd always get very obvious visual clues in these films. There's the good guy, you know John Wayne, usually, I suppose, and then the bad guy, I don't know Eli Roth or somebody like that and and, and they would it'd be really obvious who was the good and bad guys in the films. and that's how we view humanity, right? We see the good guy, we see the the, the, uh, the democracy against the Islamic extremists or we see uh, cops and robbers, don't we? In our mindset, we see respectable, decent citizens, and we see, you know, louts and hooligans at football matches and people like that. You know, the, the kind of people that I would not associate with. And that's how we divide up humanity. But there's an interesting man called Alexander Solzhenitsyn who was in a gulag. He was in a concentration camp in Soviet Russia, and he said this: "If only it were so simple." If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So we think, well, there's a whole load of bad guys and the world would be a wonderful place if we could just round them up and put them on Alcatraz, you know, put them on Madagascar or something and then just kind of like drift it off to sea with nuclear bombs or something or blast them off into space and then all the decent people like us could remain on paradise earth. But that's not right because Netson points out that a line of good and evil goes through every heart because we've all got evil in us, right? But actually it's worse than that, it's worse than Netson says. Netson isn't quite pessimistic enough. The Bible says we're all the black hats, we're all the bad guys, there's no one who does what is righteous, not even one, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3. Jesus is the one cowboy with the white hat. Yeah, we're all wearing black hats. (laughs) We're all on the side of the enemy. We're all rebels on the rebel planet. And we all deserve wrath. Like the rest, we were, by nature, deserving of wrath. Of course, because God is a just judge. And it's his universe, and he gets to decide. And we are all under the just condemnation of our sin. We're like the man on the cross who says, we deserve to be here. We're receiving the just condemnation of our sin. Now, this is very shocking for us because we don't like to think this way. We definitely like to put ourselves on the side of the angels. And that's why we go to church, some of us, because we're nice people and nice people go to church. No, (laughs) we're sinners. That's why we come to church, because we need grace. Not because we're nice people, but because we're bad people. It's the way it needs to be. There's no place amongst Christians for moral superiority. But we don't like to do that. We like to position ourselves on a spectrum and say, well, I must admit I'm not Mother Teresa, but I'm not Hitler. So I think that I'm in the, in the upper percentile of people in humanity. I, I might be better than the other 50%. And I think that when, I, when, when it comes down to it, I'm all right with him upstairs. I've heard so many people say that. Oh, me and him upstairs, we're okay. Him upstairs? Is, is God an indulgent uncle? Is he, is he a genie in a lamp? Is he a Father Christmas kind of figure with a fluffy beard? No, he isn't. Ah, uh, God is a consuming fire. That's what the Bible says. It says it's a terrible thing to fall in the hands of the living God. You've got Isaiah when he, he, he doesn't actually see God. He, sees, he doesn't even see God's... Clothing, he sees the train of God's robe filling the temple and that enough is enough to confound him entirely. He says, woe to me. I have unclean lips and I'm a people of unclean lips. I am undone. And even the seraphim, the great pure, shining, fiery creatures um, that worship God day and night around his throne saying, holy, holy, holy. They have to cover their eyes with their wings and their feet with their wings. We have a very reduced perspective of God's holiness and that makes it comfortable for us and we compare ourselves with other people and we think we're not that bad and I'm quite decent really and of course God will let me into his house. We're like the German poet Heinrich Heiner who said of course God will forgive me because that's his job. No, we are deserving of wrath, we deserve wrath. Because of this, it says by nature we're deserving of wrath, this genetic disease that we inherit from our father Adam. The day that Adam took from the tree, he died. Okay, he lived for 930 years biologically, but spiritually he died that day. And we inherit that rebellious DNA. Human beings, we think our, our problem is lack of education. If we can educate the world or, or racism or, or distribution of resources, if we can just try and sort out the food and the water, everything would be so great. If we can sort out climate change, if we could sort out our transport networks and fuel and stuff like that, everything would be fine. But the heart of the problem is the problem of the human heart. It's our nature that causes us to be deserving of wrath. Because of our sin, we come under the full weight of God's just displeasure against our rebellion. And because of our transgressions, we deserve to be cast in chains, in darkness, into the lake of fire. But you know, grammar is beautiful because this is all written in the past tense. You see that in verse three, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And this word that we're gonna get to now in, as my final point so the first point was you were dead second point is we deserved wrath and the third point is but God made us alive so now we see in verse 4 but because of his great love for us God is rich in mercy and made us alive so that, this was our state in the past but this is this, thank God friends if you're in Christ today that is no longer a description of you you were dead you were deserving of wrath but God has made you alive in Christ hallelujah that's the good news I told you we get to the good news you can't appreciate the good news unless you've got the bad news though. But God has made us alive. So let's focus on this last point in verses four and five. I've been watching the football recently, looking at the highlights anyway, and Pochettino, the Tottenham manager, he said, they're so funny managers, aren't they? They can hardly speak English, most of them. It's really funny to listen to them. Go, hey, without the football, it is impossible to live. <laughs> That's what he said. Because uh, they scored a goal in the 96th minute. Lucas Mora got his hat-trick. And it was incredible to see all the supporters. They were so alive with victory. It was like a religious experience. I actually saw, we saw a woman, didn't we? And, she, and, and people go... People raising up their eyes to heaven. And literally thanking God. And you see the footballers doing it beforehand. Like this. And then people down on their knees. And the manager was down on his knees. And they sing hymns. This is actually true. Glory, glory, Tottenham Hotspur. And the Spurs go marching on. Tottenham are the greatest thing the world has ever seen, apparently. Well, we'll see when they get to the final with Liverpool. And Liverpool won an amazing comeback as well. They were 3-0 down against Barcelona with the greatest player the world's ever seen, Lionel Messi. And they came back 4-0. It was considered to be impossible. And fans put up these signs saying, In Klopp we trust. Klopp is their German manager, and we believe, you know. It's a religious experience for some people. You might think it's ridiculous. It's a bit of leather they're kicking around. But that's because you're not invested in it, you see. They're invested in it, and they they turn it into something much greater than it is. And Jurgen Klopp says this. There are more important things than football. Okay? So Pochettino says, without football, it's impossible to live. (laughs) And Klopp says there's more important things than football, which is interesting. Klopp is right, isn't he? There are more important things than football. But the religious experience of football shows us that actually we all longing for something real and transcendent and beyond this present experience. It is possible to live without football, but it's not possible to live without Christ. Okay, that's what we're coming to now as we finish. Verses four and five, but because of his great love for us, God is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. God is loving and merciful. Verse four, His great love for us. He's rich in mercy. Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world, even though he's had to give 25% of his money to his ex-wife. He's still got over $100 billion. But is he rich in mercy? If you looked at God's bank account, you would see that He was a trillionaire in mercy. That's God's currency. He loves to show kindness to the undeserving. If you position yourself as the deserving, how can you receive mercy? We must all come on our knees and say, Lord, I deserve wrath because I was dead. In my sin and transgression and I follow the world, the devil and my flesh. I deserve your anger, but you are rich in mercy. You love to treat me better than I deserve because of Christ. There's a wideness in God's mercy. And this I know because it covers even me. What God is, he's loving and merciful. And What he's done is he's made us alive with Christ. It's only through Christ. There is no other way that we can be made alive. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane said, if there's any other way, take this cup away from me, yet not what I will, but yours be done. If righteousness, that is to be put right with God, could be found in any other way, then it was not necessary for Jesus to die. When we look at the cross, we see how essential it was for Jesus to lay down his life for us to be reconciled. You cannot be put right with God except through Jesus Christ. All the other religions of the world have their good points. They do. But they will not rescue a sinner in the hands of an angry God. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Which is why he said it is finished. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Please, friends, if you haven't yet given your life to Jesus Christ, if you haven't acknowledged that you're dead in your transgressions, that you deserve wrath, please do it today and cry out for mercy. Please. And if you have already done that, then come back to the fresh appreciation of that and say thank you again, along with me. Sometimes people say, you do your best and God does the rest. Have you heard that? And sometimes people say, doesn't the Bible say God helps those who help themselves? It does not say that. I've read the Bible the whole way through and I could not find that verse. Neither of those statements are true. Actually, you do your worst, and God does his best, and that is enough to save you. And actually, God helps those who cannot help themselves. And that is why we require mercy. That is why we require God to be the actor. God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ, even while we were dead in transgression. Dead people can do nothing. If, you're, if you are flat-lined on a table and you, you're in the emergency room and the doctors are all flurrying around you and they've got the defibrillators and so on, clear, you know, like in all the shows, like that, I don't know if that's like that in real life, but something like that, Peter knows about it. You're not doing anything. At that present moment, you are doing nothing. Your participation is to lie very still. That's your contribution, right? Your contribution to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And yet, we still feel that we can give God a helping hand in our salvation. We think, well, God does his bit and I do my bit and we collaborate together. No, 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 no. But God, He is the actor, He's the Saviour. Jesus came and rescued us. We trust in what He's done, not in what we've done. Our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Thank God for what a Saviour who's completed the work for us before we were even born. 2,000 years ago, He said, It's finished. I've done it for you. It's a gift. It's a free gift. Grace stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. It's not something that I do or you do. What we have to do is receive that gift with gratitude and not dare to presume that we could somehow climb the ladder into heaven. Because we are the problem. And Jesus is the solution. It is by grace you've been saved. When you get what you don't deserve, Romans says, you see at just the right time, while we are still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He is the one who's saved us, who's rescued us from the consequence of what we deserve. And we often sing, we're we'll sing it next week as we close, amazing grace. And I don't think we mean it. I think what we think in our minds is interesting grace, how neat the idea that assisted a nice person like me. Interesting grace, how neat the idea that assisted a nice person. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So my, what I've been trying to do this morning, I think, with God's help through the word here, is to show us that the, 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 the news, the bad news, is very dark. That, as I said, you were dead in your transgressions. And since you follow the world, the flesh and the devil, please don't deny that. You deserve what we deserve, wrath. We deserve the full punishment, the weight of God's anger against sin. But God has made us alive in Christ because he is rich in mercy and full of love. Those whom sin has killed, only God can bring back to life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the bad news and the good news of the gospel. And I pray that you give us a deeper sense of the bad news. Because we want to be like that lady who... She saw into her own heart and she was appalled. And then she looked into the face of Jesus Christ and she was delighted. She knew how bad she was and she knew how good you were. And she washed your feet, Lord, with her tears. Lord, we want to be like that. We want to understand how wretched we are so we can understand how amazing your grace is. Lord, what you've rescued us from, we probably don't even have half an idea of how bad things were, Lord. And so we don't walk around with a song in our hearts. We think you're an okay saviour, instead of an amazing, wonderful saviour. And we think we can help you out with our good deeds. And, and, And together, you and I, Lord, we'll get ourselves into heaven. And it's not true, because it is God who made me alive in Christ, not me who did anything. And I pray for anyone here this morning who's yet to taste and experience that grace, that free salvation, that total forgiveness done by Christ on our behalf. Lord, that you would bring that revelation to their hearts and flood them with light and give them new life in Christ today. Those of us who already know this good news, that we would live in the light of it so much more this week than last week. We pray these things in your name. Amen.